Hello, everyone, and inside today's Locked On Canadians, Arturi Lekkonen is a Stanley Cup champion. What can Montreal learn from the Colorado Avalanche's rebuild from laughing stock of the league to Stanley Cup champion? And the Hockey Hall of Fame is named its newest class, and Laura and I have some disagreements and some grudges to bear on today's show. For Locked On Canadians, your daily podcast on the Montreal Canadiens. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 646 of Locked On Canadians. As always, thank you for making us your first lesson or first watch of the day, whether you're listening on your uh, podcaster or you're listening to us on YouTube and seeing our beautiful shining faces here. Uh, programming note, we went to record this as the Hamilton Bulldogs and Shawinigan Cataracts game went into overtime. We just got the alert that Jan Mishek has sent the Hamilton Bulldogs to the Memorial Cup final. We will have more on that in tomorrow's show uh, once we've got time to actually kind of watch the highlights and everything a little bit more in depth. So we're not ignoring that. Today's show, however, is dedicated to the Stanley Cup final. Hockey in the NHL, AHL, ECHL at the professional level is done. There is no more hockey. The Memorial Cup is the last gasp until World Juniors. However, I'm getting ahead of myself. I am one of your hosts. I am Scott Matlin. I'm joined, as always, by the active stick, Laura Saba. And Laura, did you know that Arturi Lekkonen is a Stanley Cup champion? Did you know that he scored the Stanley Cup clinching goal? He scored the goal to send the Canadians to the Cup Final. He scored the goal that sent the Avs to the Cup Final. And then he scored the Cup winning goal. It doesn't get more big time than Arturi Lekkonen uh, in the last couple of years here. What an absolute monster. And... It, it's a bittersweet kind of night because we're looking at someone that the Canadians drafted and he was a key part of their team for years and years and years. Maybe got a little bit um, of the Lars Eller syndrome where people expected more and he was where he was and then he went elsewhere in a trade. This one, however, a little bit more popular in that I feel like it was a necessary trade, unlike the Lars Eller one. And he wins a Stanley Cup. And honestly... Both of us are so happy for him. We are also happy for Nazem Kadri, which once he left Toronto, surprisingly a lot more likable as a player. Weird how that happens, but I it's it's a surreal moment to see the guy that the Canadians traded be the piece that got Colorado over over their boogeyman, I guess. And he won them the Stanley Cup. Like he got them there and he won that. It's, it's wild to me, and it's one of those rare trades I think both teams got what they were looking for. We talked about how Kent Hughes got another pick and Justin Barron. We assume he wanted Bo and Byram in the trade, and they said no, which Colorado was smart to do so. And Colorado wins a Stanley Cup. I know it's not the same level of both teams win, but I, I'm at a loss for words to see our, our little Finnish son there uh, win himself a Stanley Cup on the, uh, in Colorado against the defending champions. I think, you know, we can talk a lot about what a smart trade that was. And I do think it was a great trade for both teams. We got some people in a tizzy when we 
said that did Kent Hughes fleece uh, Joe Sackick. I think a lot of people did, though, figure out what we were doing with that. Um, we did want to open the discussion, though, because it, it wasn't a fleecing, but it was definitely a situation where the Habs were patient and Colorado recognized the value of Lekkonen. That's what makes me happy, is that any other GM would be like, what line does he play on? How much is his contract? Yeah, I'm not giving you that much, right? Or how many points or anything like that. But Joe Sakic recognized the true value of a player like Arturi Lekkonen. And the Habs knew the true value of a player like Arturi Lekkonen. So for me, that trade was amazing. I want to talk a little bit about how Colorado did this, right? And how the Tampa Bay Lightning did this as well. They are two teams that went hard on skill, speed, analytics, smart decisions, exploiting any market inefficiency they could find. They won smart and they gave us one of the finals for the ages. Those games were all good. All the games that Tampa played were good. All the games that Colorado played were good, even in the sweep, right? You look at that, and I just find that that should be a model that the Canadians should follow. We are going to talk about that a little bit more in depth. But to me, like, that is the reward. When you go through, like, old-school hockey cliches, there's always people being like, well, they didn't hit enough. That's why they didn't win the game. If you're hitting, it means you don't have the puck, right? If you have the puck the whole time, you do not need to hit, right? If you are the faster team, you are not the one taking penalties. So, like, it's just like it, it flips all of those old-school hockey cliches on their head. And, it like, this is how you win. You build a team that is so good. And if you look at, you know, all the times, for example, the Colorado Avalanche were disappointed and they, and they exited in the second round, it's because of one thing. Goaltending may have let them down. You know, their you know, the defense might have let them down. There's one missing piece or something like that. But they were patient and they focused really hard on skill and they developed really well. Now, I think that, you know, when you do the redraft, like Kale McCarr would definitely go first, right, in his draft class. There's a lot of debate about that. But also, you know, you recognize what you have and what you need. You need that game-breaking defenseman. Like, now it's the defensive defensemen are gone. Now you're turning into two-way rover-type players. You're not necessarily an offensive defenseman or a defensive defenseman. I just, I love the way that they did that. And I love that the Canadians are showing signs of doing that as well. Yeah, I, I, I look at it. Colorado, like you said, it, and they were both had smart ads. I mean... Tampa, I think, obviously loaded up a little bit more knowing this is probably their last crack at that. So the Brandon Hagel trade, Nick Paul and everything, they spent a little bit more. Colorado did a lot of building. And in our next segment, we're going to talk about the rebuild and everything. Just the way they played, they were relentless. It was a 2-1 game, so it's a very close game. But Colorado got the lead and then just played shutdown hockey. They weren't passive. They were aggressive. They were hard to play against. It's what you want a shutdown to be. And it wasn't just McKinnon. It just it wasn't just Landis Cog. It was the entire team. Darren Helm was on that team. Andrew Cogliano was on that team. Two people I did not know were still in the NHL at this point. They turned Jack Johnson into a serviceable, regular shifting defenseman in Colorado. It, it goes a long way to show that if you get the buy-in and you get the right system for the right players, it'll eventually work itself out. And it, I wonder if a team like Toronto looks at this and goes, Colorado fell flat a bunch of times. 
we've fallen flat a bunch of times. Can we do this? And the answer is probably yes. Like they came closest this year. They didn't get it done, but they came closest this year. And I'm very curious to see if this kind of shifts the tides a little bit. Like after the Kings won and the Bruins won, everyone's like, we got to get fighty and big and mean. And smart teams kind of skirted that. And Tampa, man, Tampa's both, to be quite honest. They're a pain in the ass to play against. But Colorado is just, the uh, they are the gold standard in the NHL right now. They were long climbing that mountain. They just didn't have the title for it. And guess what? They, they have it now. And it wasn't an easy path to get there. They were the worst team in the NHL at the end of the, I believe it was 16-17 season. We're going to talk about how they went from 48 points to Stanley Cup champion. And that's all coming up in our next segment. But first, today's show is brought to you by the folks at BetOnline.net. They are your number one source for all your betting needs and sports info. Get live scoring updates, podcast info, news, everything from the, you know, well, the NHL playoffs are over, but you've got Major League Baseball Football season is not that far around the corner. You can get MMA, boxing, golf, anything you are looking for. BetOnline.net remains the best spot for all of your scores, podcasts, and everything else. Head to their website or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends and the action. BetOnline, where the game starts. All right. So I've seen this bounced around Twitter a lot. And it's honestly pretty good timing for the Montreal Canadiens, honestly, is that the Habs had a one-off year where they went very deep, admittedly, in the playoffs to the Stanley Cup final, and then the wheels fell off. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of the Patrick Waugh era a Colorado Avalanche, maybe not as dysfunctional, but definitely very close. Joe Sackick inherited a mess and a team that finished in last place, 48 points in 2016-2017. They were an abysmal team. Five years later, they are Stanley Cup champions. And there was a photo of the few remaining people that were there through the rebuild. And that was Miko Rantanen, Gabriel Landeskog, um, Nathan McKinnon, Eric Johnson, and then one player whose name I cannot think of off the top of my head here. And I apologize for that. But they stuck through that. And it was bad. Like there was a time when they thought Nathan McKinnon might get traded because he had a bad season. And it was just a bad team. And they stuck with everybody. It was Gabriel Landeskog was almost traded. He got re-signed. And they had to make tough choices. They let, you know, Matt Duchesne go. They traded other goalies. They made tough choices. It's the gold standard for a rebuild, I think, is you have to have the patience. And the thing is, if I'm Kent Hughes and Jeff Gordon watching this, yes, Jeff Gordon had a successful work in New York, admittedly. But if I'm doing this, I want to go the way Colorado did. They, you know bought into the analytic movement. They are not just all computer boys in there, but shout out to our boy, Eric from eyes on the prize was a Stanley cup champion as well. We know a a Stanley cup champion. We've gone drinking with a Stanley cup champion. (laughs) Just absolutely wild to me that we both know a Stanley cup champion, like personally know a Stanley cup champion. And they did, they had the patience to look at this. And if I'm Kent Hughes, he's already taking the strides toward that. The prospect pool is getting loaded up here. They're brought in an analytics department. They're doing what they need to to reinforce the future. The now is gone. The now for the next year and a half to two se- years, two seasons, whatever it might be, it's probably not going to be pretty. And fans kind of have to accept that. 
It has to get worse before it gets better. And the Canadians are now in a place to make that better. Yeah, they, they're not going to have a Nathan McKinnon. That's unfortunate. But at the same time, who's to say Nick Suzuki or Cole Caulfield can't become that level of player for the Montreal Canadiens? I know it's a lofty comparison, but Nick Suzuki's extremely talented. And Cole Caulfield has the ability to be a perennial 35 goal scorer. And then they're adding through the draft and they have pieces in the AHL that are coming up that have kind of proven their worth on a deep Calder run. I'm very curious. If we talk about the Rangers, we talk about Toronto and this and that and rebuilds Colorado probably should be the blueprint that they're looking at following here for long-term sustained success. I think for me, one of the biggest things um, is as you were talking about buying in, I was thinking back to a couple of weeks ago when we had Russ and Rachel from Locked on Flyers and we compared the Canadians rebuild to the Flyers non-rebuild. And we were talking about how the Flyers moves are all reacting, whereas with the Canadians, they're proacting. And I think fans are going to be patient if they know that something good is 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 next. You know, when we we're looking at Colorado, we're looking at Tampa, because don't forget, it's not that long ago that Tampa used to be a team that we used to laugh at. Remember, we used to laugh at both Florida teams. And so it would be like one of those things where, you know, at Christmas, the Habs would go there and get the free points. We would we would make fun of them. We would, you know, it was an easy it was an easy game. And things changed a lot, obviously, in Tampa over time. But what they did was they were smart, they were patient, they were careful, both under Steve Eiserman and also uh, Julian Breezebaugh, which I think Breezebaugh was really the one that brought it uh, really forward, really, really um, uh, changed things for them. And for me, I just look at this and I'm like, all right, you know what, we're talking about Arik, right? And he's a friend of ours, he used to be a hockey blogger, hockey nerd, hockey Twitter nerd, all of that. But he's no slouch. He went to Georgetown, right? Like, there is room for people with intelligence that might not be hockey players or former hockey players or, you know, formerly in the business of hockey. There is room to bring in brain like that. Um, and he's only one example, right? Like, we, we, we talk about him a lot because we're very proud of him and we're very proud to be associated with him. But that's not one guy. It's a whole team where decisions are being made based on information. And I think that's so, so key. And I think the Canadians putting in an having an analytics director and then putting in a department, we don't know how big it's going to be. And I don't particularly care as long as it's the best people. And there's people in there that can interpret analytics to the coaching staff. I think that is the most important position after who you hire to be in charge of the numbers, right? And like the patience is so, so important. And people are like, oh, we're, we're yelling about Slavkovsky versus Shane Wright and all of that. Like at the end of the day for Colorado, a lot of things had to go right. A lot of players had to reach their potential. And as you talked about, there were stumbling blocks, right? Like Nathan McKinnon, maybe he got tricked. No, Gabriel Landeskog, maybe he was miserable in Colorado. Didn't we covet him a couple of seasons ago? There's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that, that they had to be patient with. And they didn't do the reacting that the Flyers do. They didn't do like, you know, quick reacting. And I think I don't want to harp too much because I know people were a fan of what Mark Bridgevan did with this team. He did bring a Stanley Cup final to the city after a long, long time. You know, for all of that, like one of the things that I think that he started doing after a while initially, there was some patience, there was some strategy and all that. After a while, though, he started making moves reacting reacting to the last playoff run, reacting to the last team they lost to, reacting. You can't do that. You kind of have to have 
a confidence in your own vision. Your vision has to be informed. Your vision has to have a direction and a goal, but you have to have confidence. And I think that's one of the reasons why they brought in Martin St. Louis, because he is completely new. You know, everything that he brings into this team is all going to be Martin St. Louis. And to be honest, I'm thinking maybe they're not that bummed that Luke Richardson left, right? I know the organization cared for him. They left a statement today, released a statement today that was very much, you know, respectful and wishing him the best. And as we said yesterday, we do wish him the best. We like him as a person, but this allows them to bring in something new, right? Like that it kind of, it allows for for something different. And I think as long as you kind of have faith in your vision, you don't waver based on short-term adversity and you do the smart thing. You have to pick the best players in the absence of picking the absolute best players. You have to pick good players and bring out their top potential. Because if you look at the Avalanche, they're not all stars. If you look at the Tampa Bay Lightning, they're not all stars. They have stars. You need stars. You need talent. You need all stars. You need that. I'm not going to argue that you don't, but their supporting players are the best available supporting players. And that's why we keep talking about on this show, right? We talk about stuff like that. And best available supporting players includes guys like Arturi Lekadet. And that's the thing is like a rebuild is not just drafting well. It's also finding the right guys in free agency, those complementary pieces that, yeah, Colorado is Nathan McKinnon and Miko Rantanen and, you know, Kale McCarr with Devin Tays there. But also getting a guy like Valerie Nachushkin getting Nazem Kadri who played a big role, getting an Arturi Lekkanen. It's all well and good to have superstars, but if you don't have the right complementary pieces, we saw with Toronto against the Habs, their their stars were great, but their complementary pieces did not fit the style that they wanted to play. Joe Edmonton. Thornton, Wayne Simmons, all it doesn't work if it doesn't fit your system. You want to play up-tempo, you can't play the older, slower guys, unless you're going to build your system around them, which seems like a waste. Um it, it, it's another example and it, like that's the thing like Duncan Keith for example guys like that you can't build on things like character anymore you have to have skill that's it there there is like a place for locker room leadership but you got to be able to play and if you can't play at the level the team needs you to then guess what it's not a fit uh that's going to kind of wrap on us talking about the Stanley Cup final congrats to Colorado congrats to our friends over at Lockdown Avalanche you know go check out their celebration I'm sure they are still partying there uh, to our friends at Lockdown Lightning, um, you got two. So that's two more than most other teams have. So congratulations on that. We're going to shift gears a little bit. Uh, coming up next, the Hockey Hall of Fame named their class this year. And despite it being good, I'm still mad, which shouldn't surprise anybody. And that's all coming up next. All right, so this kind of snuck up on me because the NHL, as always, likes to bury things in bigger news. Uh, the 2022 Hockey Hall of Fame class was announced today. Uh, both Sedins, Roberto Luongo, Daniel Alfredson, Herb Carnegie, uh, are all going in the hall. And I am already forgetting one of the uh, inductees' names, and I feel bad about that. And my biggest thing with this is that the Hockey Hall of Fame, when they do an induction every single year, has a limited number of spots for women to uh, be inducted. There are two slots every single year. And this year, uh, the Finnish women's player Rika Salinen was the one who was nominated to the Hockey Hall of Fame, which is great. It is showing they're looking outside North America for women to induct into the Hockey Hall of Fame. However, 
you have two slots to add women to the Hall of Fame, an arbitrary number, which seems extremely unfair considering the incredible number of female hockey players who are out there. And the name that was left off that has shocked so many people is Carolyn Willette. And I don't hesitate to say that in an era where you have Haley Wickenheiser and then that was followed up by Marie-Philippe Poulin and then the next generation after that, Carolyn Willette was in the middle of all of that. And her not getting into the Hall of Fame this year is almost insulting to everything that she's done. She's got two NCAA titles. She's got, I believe, 10 different gold medals. She has 600 career points across her career in like 370 games. She's incredible. And at no point did the board of people picking here, which I believe only has a few women on it to begin with, looked at that and went, not good enough for the Hockey Hall of Fame. And my first thought with that is, are you absolutely kidding me? All due respect to uh, Rika, who is, inaug- who is going in this year, who is a phenomenal player in her own right. You're talking about a building block of not only, you know, Team Canada, but women's hockey in North America. And you just decided, no, not good enough. You had two slots. It's not like you had to pick one or the other. And this was your reasoning. You had two slots and picked one. I, why even, why even bother? I, it's so, it's almost unfair. And yes, I know women's hockey is not for everyone. I'm not going to try and convert you to make you watch, you know, PHF or PWHPA games. If you don't want to watch it, that's on you. But if you're talking about purely talented hockey players, Carolyn Willette not going in is almost offensive. And the only way they can make up for this is if they, you know, send Julie Chu and Carolyn Willette to the Hall of Fame together next year. That's the only way to even make this slightly better. And I don't even think that covers it. And so, I'm I'm frustrated on behalf of someone who made my American hockey viewing a nightmare for so many years. <laughs> yeah. And so, okay, so there are a couple of major omissions, right? And you can argue about, like, with the men's players, there's always, like, did he have enough points? Did he win enough cups? Does he have any, you know, personal uh, achievements or, you know, personal hardware or whatever? Um, but uh, Mogilny was left off as well, right? And yes. so, you know, there are some glaring omissions. And I just think about all of the uh, the previous times that somebody was left off um for years at a time i'm thinking like pat burns for example was one one major example right people get kept getting upset over that and i i just remember there being like this stupid thing about like not getting enough votes so like if somebody didn't vote then you know you need like a minimum number of votes even if you have people and i was like why not just take you know the person with the most votes even if you don't reach that whatever minimum is, whatever. I, I, somebody explain this to me. And I'm looking right now at the criteria for a player, okay? This is literally what it says for a player. Playing ability, sportsmanship, character, and contributions to his or her team or teams and to the game of hockey in general. So which of these does Willette not have? And, and here's the thing. Like, they nominated and inducted Luongo and both Sedins. Great. All phenomenal players. Mm-hmm. They have no titles to speak of, you know, outside of like Luongo has Olympic gold, I believe. And I believe the Sedins have Olympic medals, but nothing I at the NHL might have level. been on that team that when Team Sweden won. They have no NHL trophies. They have Did Western they? Conference titles, but who cares? If you don't win a Stanley Cup, it doesn't matter. 
Luongo has, I believe, a Vezna. I believe there's um, some individual hardware for the Sedins, but like Carolyn Willette has more trophies than all of them combined. And I don't know what, and has contributed more to helping grow the women's game. Men's hockey doesn't need as much help. Like Carolyn Willette did so much and to not have her in, it, it's just, what? I, I, I don't, and I don't understand why there's a limit on like why or who, how many women you can induct in a year. Because like it took forever, like Cami Granado to go in, Haley Wickenheiser, Kim St. Pierre, all these incredible women. And I'm going to look at, she's got four World Cups, four Olympic gold medals, six or um, world championships, six gold world championships, four gold medals in the Olympics, six silver world championships, four times CWHL champion and one NCAA title. Are you kidding me? Like in across her career at, in the CWHL in 179 games, 314 points in 97 NCAA games, 229 points, 20 Olympic games, 26 points, 59 world or championship games, 68 points. She was over a point per game at every level she played at, except for under 18, where she was a half point per game. I I don't understand how you look at that and go, not good enough for the hockey hall of fame. That's so it's it's stunningly good. Better than I remember. And like I was introduced to her when I started following the uh, Le Canadien when they were part of the CWHL before the league folded. It's I it, it hurts a little bit and it kind of cheapens the hall here. And, and that's not to say like Alexander McGinley, who should be in the Hockey Hall of Fame as well. The dude had to be smuggled out of the Soviet Union. He risked his and his family's life to come play hockey. And he's still not in there. Because I remember people got mad that Guy Carboneau went in, and I kind of laughed because, ha-ha, the Hab made it. Everyone's mad. I look at it years later and go, he probably shouldn't have over someone like Alexander McGilney, who is an incredible story of perseverance to get here and then over a point-per-game hockey player. I, I would really like to see something kind of overhauled in this. And I know Steve Simmons said something dumb on Twitter. We're not going to get into that because I don't care what Steve Simmons thinks about women's hockey because I don't care what Steve Simmons thinks at all. It took me a long time, but yes, the Sedins were on that Olympic gold-winning 2006 roster. (laughs) They still have one less gold medal or several less gold medals than Carolyn Willett has by herself. I 100% agree with you. No, I'm just saying. um, No, but but I just wanted to, to clarify that part. I think one of the things is that there needs to be, it's weird because it feels like it's passionless. You know what I mean? Like the fans clamor, the fans campaign, like Alfie to the hall, right? Like the, the Sens fans and Eric Carlson and everybody got involved, like trying to get da- Daniel Al- Alfredson named this year because they thought it was an omission. And I think I, I agree. Like for me, Dan, like um, Daniel Alfredson for his team. Yeah, I absolutely agree that he deserves it. But at the same time, it feels like the actual voting process is passionless. Like, why? Like, because if it, if if there was that interest, that like that that drive, you know, you would get like we wouldn't have had to wait so long for Pat Burns. You would get McGillney. You would get Willette. You would get two women every year. It's just not happening. 
And it, so for me, like, I just, I feel like y- you have to be objective, yes. But this is the Hockey Hall of Fame, right? Yeah, it's not the Hall of, okay, they were good and nice to me. It's the best hockey players in the world. I do want to leave on a parting thought of, I thought it was weird that Senators fans campaigned for Detroit Red Wings legend Daniel Alfredson, but like, I'll allow it, I guess. So um, you can send your angry tweets uh, to my spam folder uh, on Gmail. I will not be reading them. That's going to wrap up our show. We're going to be back. We're going to talk the Memorial Cup and some other things. We do have two great guests lined up for this week to finish things off. Uh, One of them will carry over into next week. We are very excited to share all of this with you. Send us your draft questions. Yes, draft questions, please. We are, by the time you are listening to this episode, uh, just over a week away from the NHL draft in Montreal. We are very much looking forward to it. As always, follow the show on Twitter at LO underscore Canadians. Lockdown Canadians on the YouTube where you are watching our shining faces right now. Follow Laura at The Active Stick. Myself at Scott Matla. We'll see you all next time.